This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 31st, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online daily news stories, and then we hear from Ayelet Gnizi on changing attitudes towards charitable giving. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm. He's the editor for our online daily news site, and he's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on viruses that leap between species. As the names indicate, we can catch avian flu from birds and swine flu from pigs. What about organisms a little further away on the evolutionary tree? A new study proposes we can catch a virus from algae. So Dave, how did this come up in the first place? Well, a few years ago, researchers started detecting a virus called ATCV1, which is usually found in a species of green algae that lives in lakes and rivers. They were finding this virus in brain tissue of people that had died. And they weren't sure why, and they didn't really sort of pay too much attention to it at the time. And then a few years later, scientists did a survey of microbes and viruses that live in the throats of people with psychiatric disease, and this virus showed up again. So in this new study, researchers want to see how widespread is this virus? And what kind of impact might it be having on people? How did they test for it in people and mice? Well, because all the other viruses had been found in people that weren't healthy, they looked at 92 healthy individuals. They found the virus in nearly half of them. And what's more, those who had the virus seemed to perform worse on some mental acuity tests. For example, they were worse on tests of visual processing, connecting maybe a couple of dots on a page. And their attention spans also seemed to be shorter. 
And then they went so far as to infect mice by introducing the algae? Well, they weren't sure like if the virus was actually having this effect or if it was just sort of a hitchhiker on other effects, you know, maybe things like smoking or socioeconomic factors. You know, they weren't sure if this was just a correlation or if it was the virus specifically that was having these effects. So they actually gave the virus to mice. And it turns out that mice that were infected with the virus also had some mental problems. They took longer to find their way out of mazes, and they also seemed to have shorter attention spans, just like the people did. And once they looked at those behavioral changes, they followed it up by looking at gene activity. But there still seems to be some doubt about the causative role of the virus. Why is there so much hesitation? Well, first of all, we don't know whether this virus can actually leap from algae to people. We just know that it's found in algae and it's found in people. We don't really know how it got into people in the first place. And the tests that were done were just done in mice. So even though we see this correlation in people, scientists actually haven't proven that this virus has this impact on people. So there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. And this is all on your home turf. Is anyone outside of Baltimore carrying this virus? It isn't. They found a lot of this in Baltimore, where I live. Well, I mean, I guess one of the concerns is that, you know, if this really is transmissible between green algae and humans, that perhaps anybody that works in the seafood industry or that works around water could potentially be exposed. So even though we don't know a whole lot about it now, it's important to learn a lot more about it than we know now. Next up, we have a story on human population growth. We've all heard the dire predictions associated with the ever-expanding human population. As we hit limits of the carrying capacity of the planet, the expectation is to see water and food shortages, excessive pollution, and other terrible things. But what would it take to stop that growth? According to a new computer model, killing off millions of people is not the answer. Dave, why are they asking this question this way? <laughs> well, be just because of the reasons you stated, Sarah, that even though the rate of human population growth is slowing, we're still talking about a lot of people. Every dozen years or so, at least for the past few decades, we've added another billion people to the planet. And if things keep on going at the current rate, it's estimated we'll have 12 billion people on the planet by the end of the century. Obviously, there's concerns about resources, there's concerns about impact on the environment. So, you know, the real question is, can we do anything to slow it down? What the researchers did was they actually created a model of human population growth, and they threw a whole bunch of scenarios at the model. What if something like an asteroid impact hits Earth and it wipes out a half a billion people? What impact will that have on population growth? What if everybody adopts a one-child policy so couples can only have one child? What if there are more terminations of unwanted pregnancies? So there were a lot of different factors. We already touched on the killing millions of people scenario. What happened to the population growth in that case? Not much, it turns out. Even if you had this dramatic loss of life, we'd still be at about 10.5 billion people by 2100, which isn't a whole lot less than current projections if we stick to the business as usual scenario. And according to the model that they used, what will work to slow growth? Well, they found two things that will work. One is adopting this global one-child policy. That seemed to slow growth. And the other thing was eliminating unwanted pregnancies, which make up about 16% of all live births. And the researchers found that in both of those scenarios, we ended up with about 7 to 8 billion people in 2100, which actually isn't a whole lot more people than we have right now. Well, even if the math works out, there's a lot of other factors going into making these kinds of things happen. Is that, are the researchers recommending we take any of these steps? Well, they're not making any recommendations. They're just trying to get a better handle on if we were to try to 
create some solutions, which solutions are going to be more likely to work than others. And their real take-home message is that there's a tremendous amount of momentum in human population growth, which is why so many of these scenarios don't work because we're just already on this sort of explosive path. And trying to stem the tide is very difficult. Lastly, we have a story on an asteroid with avalanche potential. In a little less than 15 years from now, we, the people of Earth, are going to witness a near-asteroid flyby. No one is worried about any impact on the surface of the planet, but there is some speculation that such a close passage might have an effect on the asteroid. Dave, what do we know about this flying object? This flying object is named Apophis, and it's predicted to get very close to Earth on Friday the 13th, 2029. We love that date. It's a very large asteroid. It's about as wide as three football fields, but it's not going to hit us, at least we don't think. It's going to pass within about 35,000 kilometers, which is still pretty close. And what's significant about that distance is it's still a distance where this asteroid is going to feel a lot of the effects of Earth's gravity. And what does the asteroid actually look like? Well, that's the thing we don't know. But we do know that there are similar asteroids. For example, a few years ago, a Japanese spacecraft called Hayabusa photographed an Apophis-sized asteroid called Itakawa, and it found that this asteroid wasn't just one giant rock. It was actually basically a massive debris pile flying through space. It was just a giant clump of rocks held together, and they think that Apophis is probably something similar. And when the researchers in the study that we're going to talk about made a model of this flying pile of rocks, what effect did they see after simulating a close encounter with the Earth? Well, the really cool thing they saw was that there was actually little avalanches that were happening on Apophis. If you can imagine, you've got these rock piles, and as these rocks are attracted to Earth's gravity, they're going to come tumbling down the pile, and you're going to see what the scientists suspect will be small avalanches on the asteroid. And if this happens, will planet-side observers be able to see anything changing as this giant rock pile goes by? Unlikely. The researchers say the avalanches will be so small, they would be hard to see even if you were standing on Apophis. <laughs> so that's a little disappointing. They would also be incredibly slow moving. One of the researchers says that you could literally have lunch before the avalanche stopped moving. So although the word avalanche conjures some pretty dramatic things in our mind, we're probably not going to see anything that dramatic happening on the surface of Apophis. But there must be some way to confirm these predictions that are being made by the model, right? When these things happen on these asteroids, you actually have to have an exfoliation effect because asteroids don't get a lot of change happening on them. But if you have the rocks on top tumbling down, then you're exposing fresher rocks from underneath and the asteroid gets a bit of a resurfacing. And, and astronomers think that if they take some particular measurements as Apophis flies by, they'll actually be able to tell whether this resurfacing is happening. And is this a repeated phenomenon? Are we going to see this asteroid ever again? Apophis will be back in 2036, but it's going to be passing us at a much greater distance. So unlikely to see any avalanches during that flyby. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what video games can tell us about human social interaction. Also, a list of the top 10 scariest experiments of all time, just in time for Halloween. For Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story on a new quest to develop experimental vaccines for Ebola. Also a story that's creating a lot of buzz on our site about a creationism conference that's being held at a large U.S. university 
and the controversy surrounding that. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. With the rise of free websites dedicated to sorting good charities from bad, donors have come to avoid good works organizations with high overhead. But is high overhead for a charitable organization necessarily a bad thing? I spoke with Ayelet Genizi about what it exactly means for a charitable organization to have high overhead and how to maximize donations in spite of overhead aversion. What we look at uh, in this paper essentially is people's reluctance to support charities that have relatively high overhead costs. So what we do first is we test whether this aversion actually exists. Uh, we then try to understand what the roots of the aversion is, so why it's actually happening, why are people so uncomfortable or unwilling to support a charity that has relatively high overhead costs. And the last thing that we do is we propose one way to increase donations while keeping overhead costs intact. So we don't change, we don't reduce overhead costs, but we actually are able to increase willingness to support the charity. Why do people, in this case potential donors, seem to care about charities' overhead? Did this concern come to prominence as more and more transparency has been applied through the Internet? I think that the prominence of information, right, charity rating organizations and websites definitely makes it more apparent and they do provide overhead information for potential donors. But going back to the first part of your question, so why is this even a problem? So I think you can generally think about two categories of concern. One would be logical ones, right? I don't want to use the word rational, but I'll give an example. If I see that the overheads are very high, one thing that might happen is people might think that there is corruption, right? That someone is misusing the money or that there's maybe no corruption, but still misuse of money, you know, just lack of effectiveness. Something is not really working the way it should work, either because bad people, you know, ulterior motives, or just because it's ineffective, and mm-hmm. therefore they don't want to support that charity. The other reason could be, and that's what we look at more, is really the emotional response that we have. If you have $20 to give to a charity, right, and you know that the overhead says 80% or 50%, what essentially I'm telling you is that half of your donation, right, is actually going to be used to pay, say, salaries or the salary of the CEO, you know, rental of offices. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that, that's not why I'm giving money. I'm giving money to feed a hungry child. I'm giving money, right, to support the education program. And when I support the child, I provide them a meal, I feel good. I have this sense that I did something good, that I had a positive impact on their lives. Helping pay the salary of the CEO, that doesn't make me feel that good about myself. Jim Androni, who is an economist at UCSD, in the 90s, he coined that kind of feeling, warm glow, so warm glow of giving. His idea was that one of the reasons people give is because it makes them feel good about themselves. We think that covering the CEO's salary doesn't make people feel as good about themselves as really feeding a child. But is high overhead at a charity necessarily a bad thing? I don't think so. My immediate response would be just as low overhead is not necessarily good. I think that people should look at overhead and it should be used as one criteria to assess, you know, whether a charity is good or bad. But at the end of the day, what we should really care about is what impact the organization is having. So if the charity is having very high overhead costs, but it's extremely effective and it's relative to other organizations in each category, creating a huge impact, that's what I should really care about. 
Just if you want a company to be effective, so to a company be successful and effective, what you need to have is, for example, a very talented CEO. And a very talented CEO in the for-profit and also in the non-profit world should be someone you know, who is paid enough and sometimes paid a lot. And I, I don't think that looking at the CEO's salary and saying, well, he makes too much, I don't like it, I don't think that makes sense. Because if you're not willing to pay a lot for the CEO's salary, you, know, you won't get the person that you would want to have there. What kind of evidence or what kind of trends are we seeing? Are people avoiding giving to organizations with high overhead? Is it having an impact? What is there a negative effect that's being seen? There was a letter that was written by the executive of the three leading U.S. charity evaluators. Those are the companies that actually provide the information about overhead. Mm-hmm. It's called an open letter to the donors of America, and the idea is really to call people and tell them that overhead is simply a poor measure of a charity's performance. And the reason that they came out with this letter is because there was increasing evidence that, you know, if someone is searching for a nonprofit to invest in, say, in hunger, right? One of the main criteria you look at, if not the first one, is overhead. And if they see overhead is high, and by the way, high is relative, right? They just won't support it. In your study, you first looked at and found that there is an aversion to paying for overhead. And then you went out to a much wider audience and presented them various options, some of which avoided overhead expenditures. Can you talk about the different conditions? So we had four conditions in the study. We had a control condition in which we simply told individuals it was a regular solicitation letter from the nonprofit. It was an education program in the United States. Specified what the cost of each specific project is, and that was $20,000, and asked individuals to support and help. And people essentially could donate $20, $50, or $100. And then we had three other conditions in which we added additional information. In the seed funding condition, what we told individuals is that we already received a donation from a private donor for the sum of $10,000, and that that donation was going to be used as seed funding, which essentially means that just the first startup donation that was given to help raise this money. In another condition, which we call the matching model condition, and what we told individuals is that a large private donor gave us $10,000 to help with this campaign, and that that money was going to be used for every $1 that people donate, that $1 will be donated from that initial $10,000 gift. And in the last condition, which was our focus of overhead condition, what we told individuals is the sum was again the same. A large private donor gave $10,000 to help with this campaign, but what we told them is that the $10,000 were going to be used to cover the overhead costs associated with the campaign, and the third donation will be essentially overhead-free. So all the money donated will actually be used for the cause itself, for programming. So after presenting 40,000 people with these options, what trends were you able to see? What we find essentially is that people in the seed funding and the matching model gave significantly more than individuals in the control, but those two didn't differ from one another statistically. And then people in the overhead-free condition actually donated the largest amount overall. Donations were almost twice as much. What really drives this difference in donations is really donation likelihood. So just many more people donate when overhead-free. You get more money, it's just for more people. It's for more people, and I think that is an important thing because one of the objectives of charities is really to increase their donor base. And this is something that actually, I think, would help them get there, right? We actually show that People are not averse to overhead spending per se, 
but it's really about how their money is going to be used. We keep the overhead ratio high, right? We keep it at 50%, but we tell some people that overhead is high, but someone else paid for it or it's being covered. And some people would tell, we say, actually, we're going to take overhead from the money that you're going to give. And what we find, as long as someone else pays for that, they're fine. It's really about how their money is being used. And we ask them specifically after that, how impactful did you feel that your donation was? How good do you feel about your donation? And they feel less good about their donation when money goes out of their own donation. Now that we know people's preference, that donors would give more if they were told their donation wasn't going to be used for overhead, mm-hmm. does that mean that charities are going to begin to advertise this and perhaps even kind of push overhead aversion even further? Right, 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 right. And it's, it's a real concern because if all charities adopt what we test and show that's effective, we implicitly say, well, you are right to not like overhead and here is a way to not give to overhead. No one should give to overhead unless you're like a professional donor. And I'm speaking on behalf of all three of us. This is not what we would want to happen in the long run. Optimally, what you would want to have is a situation in which people understand overhead, understand what it means, understand why it's needed, and would be willing to donate even if overhead is high. Now, not blindly, still scrutinize and still use other measures, but to understand that sometimes high overhead doesn't mean that the charity is ineffective and that you shouldn't support it. We have run many studies, probably in the two digits by now, trying to to do exactly that. We try telling people explicitly that the charity is very impactful, that it's number one or two in its category. Uh, We show them clips that explain the necessity for overhead. It's a really very sticky effect. Why do you think it's important to study people's motives for donation and the behavior around charitable organizations? If you go and you look at TED Talks that look at social impact and social innovation and whatnot, almost all of those talks, will at some point, usually in the, the beginning, say something in the lines of, you know, our world's uh, problems are just increasing and governments clearly fail to address them. So we need us as individuals to rise to the challenge and actually do that. So I think that's why, because, you know, you can say, well, maybe it's not an increase, it's just that we hear more about it, right? Just, you know, the media, right? Everything is out there and nothing escapes our awareness, even if we're trying But one way or another, the sense is that there is more and more need for interventions and help and support, and funding is decreasing. So if you think about federal funding, we all know that that is decreasing because there are more and more limits on those budgets. Ayelet, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Ayelet Ganesi and colleagues write about maximizing charitable giving in the face of overhead aversion in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. 
Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.